Amen. Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you would, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. We're continuing. Uh-oh. That's already happening. That means it's time to trim the beard. We are, uh, we are continuing in Ruth. Uh, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. Zach, I'm going to move this microphone back so I don't trip and fall down. So glad you're here on the 4th of July weekend. Uh, hope everyone had a great holiday. Uh, I know on my street, Josh and I, we live on the same street. We had quite a fireworks extravaganza, which was fun. So hope you all got to see some great fireworks and had a great time with friends and family, whatever you were doing. So some I know are still traveling. And some are watching the Women's World Cup. So I'm really glad that you all are here. So uh, like Brett said, don't tell us what happens in case you've you got a live feed going in your ear. Ruth, chapter 3, uh, we're continuing in our series in the book, where are we at? What's going on here? Uh, we're going to continue this, this. Why are we studying this? Why are we studying this, this Old Testament short story, this short little four chapters? What is it all about? What is the Lord trying to teach us through this story? Well, this story has some amazing themes. It has some amazing truths that we glean from this Old Testament book. It's a story, this little story, this perfectly written short story, as many scholars uh, will tell you, even outside of the biblical context, this story is highly regarded as this brilliant literary piece just in and of itself. And when we look at it as God's people, now that we know the coming of our Messiah, we see these incredible themes of redemption being played out here in the book of Ruth. It's a story about a guy named Boaz and a lady named Ruth. This couple, it's their story of how they meet, their unlikely story of how they fall in love, how they get married, how they have a child. This child will later uh, be the great grandfather of King David and the great, 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 great grandfather of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this story mirrors the pictures of redemption that happens here to this couple with our greater redemption that we find in Christ our Lord. And so it's this wonderful story that we can learn a lot from. And so we are actually right in the middle of it. We're right uh, beginning chapter 3. In fact, where Ruth is going to initiate a conversation with Boaz. And we're going to see here in chapter 3, for the first time in this story, uh, the beginnings of romance right? And so the beginning of romance and ultimately what will end as we finish this book, redemption for Naomi and Ruth. And ultimately we get to see a picture of our great redemption in these stories. So we got romance. So let's buckle up. I know we got little kids in here, so this will be even more fun for me, right? So I had to kind of, you'll see, it gets, it gets strange quick in here. So um, yeah, this is going to be fun. Kids, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. There's a lot for you to learn here, too, so take good notes. Recap, real quick, if you're new with us. Chapter 1, we've got this this family. We've got uh, the family of Elimelech, and he's from Bethlehem. So if you're wondering what's going on up until this point, maybe you've been in and out. Elimelech, the husband, takes his whole family to the country of Moab. The Moabites are long-standing enemies of the Israelites, right? So Israel and Moab do not get along. Elimelech, an Israelite from Bethlehem, leaves his country to go to Moab in search of food because there is great famine in the land. In the land, and so they sojourn in Moab. Elimelech's sons take Moabite wives, which would have been shocking if you were uh, a first-century reader reading this story. Uh, and so they take Moabite wives. Elimelech, in the story, in the first chapter, dies. 
leaving his wife, Naomi, as a widow. Uh, His two sons, Elimelech's two sons, die as well after they've been married to two ladies named Orpah and Ruth. Orpah does... She's like, I'm gone. Her husband dies. She's like, I'm married. Was married to this Israelite man, which is enough tension of itself. But Ruth clings. The scripture tells us to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and says, "Where you go, I will go. Your people are my people. Your God is my God." She comes to faith in God, and she remains faithful uh, to Naomi. Naomi has her only picture of what it means to follow the Lord. They lived there. They were there for 10 years. And so uh, they travel back. Chapter 2, this, the, Ruth and Naomi, these two ladies, uh, travel back to Bethlehem just in time for the barley harvest because they hear that the Lord had once again visited his people, that there's food back in Bethlehem. So they leave Moab to go back To the people of God, Ruth travels with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And they walk into town. I'm sure quite a scene stirs up. They're hungry. Uh, They're scared for their future. They are lacking great hope. They don't know what lies ahead. And then we read in chapter 2, Ruth, knowing the situation that is in front of her, knowing that they are hungry, they don't have husbands to help provide for them. And during that time, uh, so they were... They, were, uh, they didn't have lands. They didn't know what the future would hold. So Ruth knows we need to get food. We need to feed one another. So Ruth goes out into the fields, and she basically says that she is um, picking up, she's gleaning in the fields, meaning she's picking up scraps that are left behind by farmers in the time in Bethlehem. That's what farmers would do. They would leave behind scraps for the poor. That's how they, the poor often got nourishment. And so this is what Ruth is doing. She's doing what needs to be done. This woman has grit. This woman has determination. And she said, I'm going to feed myself and my mother-in-law, and I'm going to make sure we have enough. So she gets to work in what seems like a very hopeless situation, providing for the needs that they have. But Ruth, by God's providence, finds herself in a field, and the owner of that field, and his name is Boaz. And that's where we met Boaz. Boaz, we learned, is a man of integrity. He's a man of justice. He's a man of mercy. He's a man of great hospitality. He's a man of overwhelming generosity. And we learn as we look at the the, the man Boaz and his life and what he's built on and how he acts and how he responds to the least of these, he looks a lot like Jesus as we begin to read about him. And things uh, are beginning to look up for Ruth and Naomi when they meet Boaz. He provides for her. He protects her, and they essentially have their first date we saw last week, right? They had some roasted grains and some wine in the field, and they had their first date, and we were kind of left on the edge of our seats. We're wondering in the story. The story has a lot of cliffhangers. It produces a lot of, like, wondering what's going to happen next, and chapter 2 ends and begins to conclude in such a way. We're wondering, what's going to happen is, are Ruth and Boaz going to get together? Is this budding romance going to continue? Uh, is Boaz going to ask her out on another like, date in the field with some roasted grains and some, uh, some wine, right? And quite the opposite happens, we learned last week. Chapter 2 ends with what I said was one of the bleakest verses in the Old Testament. If you have any romantic bone in your body, it ends with these words. And she lived with her mother-in-law. 
No one thought that was funny. That was like, that was it. That was my joke. Come on, guys. Pastor joke. And she lived with her mother. It's like you're wondering, like, Boaz, come on, you got to ask her out one more time. And it just ends with just, now she went back and lived with her mother-in-law. So we're left wondering what will happen. We're left wondering what's going to go on with this couple. We're left wondering what is going to happen. Uh, how are they going to get together? We'll, what will the next interaction will be? There's no swipe left or swipe right or however that works nowadays on a phone to meet people. There's no let's go uh, friend request Boaz on social media to make sure we can have a happenstance meeting later on the week. There's none of that. How are they going to connect? How are they going to meet one another? What's going to transpire here? And this morning what we're going to see as we pick up in this story is we see the plan to get Boaz's attention. We're going to see a proposal enacted by Ruth. So we're going to see this plan hatched in verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see a proposal in verses 6 through 9. So that's all we're going to get through today, nine verses. And this is all going to happen in the same night. This is all going to happen very quickly. Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, hatches this plan to get this guy's attention. Okay? And so this is where we pick up in the story. It gets a little strange, I'll warn you. So buckle up. It has a little bit of explaining to do in this. Ruth 3, 1 through 9. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, meaning Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, this is Ruth, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Wow. There's a lot going on right there, isn't there? Kind of wish Josh was preaching this one today, all right? So a few caveats before we continue here. Um, a few things to just keep in mind, to bear in mind as we walk through this story. First, it's just a general idea and understanding of biblical interpretation, okay? So when, you, when we're reading narratives in the Bible, when we're looking and presented with narratives, meaning stories in the Bible, like this one that we just read, um, narratives are not always normative, meaning this. Narratives uh, do not always mean uh, prescriptive rules. So there's a story being told. This does not mean that this is a normative way that all of you and I should take notes and say, well, here's the prescribed way that I should go meet someone, okay? The, the narrator is telling a story of what's happening, right? So the storyteller is simply describing events. He's not prescribing activities for us. Make sense? We tracking? Yeah? So, meaning this, I would not give my two daughters this advice when they were going to go meet someone, okay? 
I, I would not write this down and say, uh, Izzy and Ruthie, you should go do this, right? This is not the advice I would give them, really, at all. Um, but, so knowing that, so we, got, we have to take into account all of Scripture to help us draw appropriate principles found in the Bible. All right? So secondly, what, what do we need to keep in mind about this narrative that we're reading in Ruth? This story is full of suspense. It's meant to. It feels strange. It feels uh, kind of a little bit like, wow, I can't believe this is happening on purpose. The, the author here, the narrator, is not giving us every single detail. He's not giving us everything that's said, but he's building suspense in this story on purpose. So speculation here is not helpful. So we can't just speculate into what's going on, even though there's uh, a lot happening in this story. We can't just say, well, geez, this, maybe this happened, maybe that happened, maybe this didn't happen, right? The storyteller doesn't give us everything here, and there's some actually some cultural practices at play in this story that we simply don't fully understand that are not commonplace for you and I today. When we read about uncovering of feet, when we read about all these things, these are something, these are things that seem very strange to us, but have cultural implications at the time that we don't fully grasp. So what we've got to do is we've got to focus our attention on what's clear and what's applicable for us, and we need to avoid making sort of speculation as dominant points. So take scripture as a whole and let, allow that to interpret even these texts in narrative. So these are not, these are not prescriptive events. They're a narrative being told to us. So just wanted to say that. Um, now, lastly, the, the content of the story is a little bit uncomfortable. That's just kind of the nature of it. Um, but this tension is important, and it's there on purpose, because what it does for us and what it's meant to do for us is it highlights something for us in this story. It highlights the purity of both Ruth and Boaz. This, this event right here. It highlights their purity. Their actions, what they do, what they say, what they don't engage in, uh, highlights their purity. And we're going to see why that case is made as we walk through the story, even pointing back to a story that uh, is found in Genesis that this, this shadows, in fact. So, if it's your first Sunday, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, it's quite an interesting text that we find ourselves in, right? Uh, so here we go. Uh, both Ruth and Boaz here are much-needed examples for us of godliness and impurity. Remember, uh, this book is right off of the heels of Judges, where the very last verse in Judges, it says this, and everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time where they didn't take into account the, the standard of God, the purity of God, the integrity of the people of God, and people just did whatever they felt like doing. They were, they were, uh, they were just slave to their passions and whims. And here we see an example to the contrary of that, of two people showing incredible integrity and purity um, in the scriptures, the opposite of just doing what was right in their own eyes. And so this tension that we feel is here on purpose, right? We see purity and we see godliness. And this proposal that, that, that Ruth sets forth here is very unorthodox. But remember, this whole story is about two unlikely people and their story of redemption. 
And we ultimately see our story of redemption in this. These two unlikely people that love God and they hold fast to purity, commitment, and godliness. Let's jump right in. So, the first scene right here as it begins to unplay. Then Naomi said to her mother-in-law, <coughs> sorry, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well for you? So what's so important here as we jump into this first scene in chapter 3? This is important because a, a massive change has taken place in the life of Naomi. If you remember, the, the name Naomi means sweet. But as the story progressed, as, she, uh, as all these hardships were happening to Naomi, she in fact looked at everyone around her, family and her friends, and she said, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And so we saw that Naomi was complaining. We saw that Naomi was negative. We saw that Naomi, Naomi was bitter with the circumstances that the Lord had her in. And she was just not in a good place. But here, for the first time, we see that God's faithfulness and kindness is breaking through in her bitter heart. She's beginning to think of someone else besides just herself. She's now thinking about Ruth. Ruth, should I not seek rest for you? I think this is a great sign for us, church. This is just a side note, that when God's grace is working in our lives, when God's grace is pressing down in our hearts and our minds, we begin to think of the welfare of others and not just of ourselves. That's a mark of the grace of God that's pressing into our hearts and minds. We begin to look beyond just ourselves and our own needs to the needs and heart and lives of others. Naomi went from being self-absorbed, only looking at her circumstances. God has dealt bitter with, bitterly with me, complaining. And now she's thinking about Ruth. Verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Meaning she was working in the field and there was other young women there. So she's underlining here. Naomi's saying, hey, this guy Boaz, he's an eligible bachelor. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this whole, isn't he one of your relatives, this sounds a little bit strange, Right? What's happening here? Why is this language being used? Um, this is not like an Arkansas hill people type thing, right? This is not, it's not there. I can say that because I married someone from Arkansas, right? So I'm, I'm in the clear. So it's, it's not like, oh, is, what's, that seems strange and odd. What's happening here? Why is this normative? What's going on here? This was part of Israelite culture. This would have been normal. A culture where a redeemer namely Boaz here in this story, would come to the aid of a relative whose husband had died. So if your husband died, this would most often be a brother. You would make sure that that widow wouldn't be left alone, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't suffer the hardships. Uh, you would take on your brother's lands, the responsibilities of even if you were single and you were able to marry that person, you would take on the responsibility of being a father, you would take on the responsibility of that wife and the, and the responsibilities of the land and all the things that came along with that. So this was the idea of making sure that those who were close to you, that you loved and the people of God wouldn't suffer and be forgotten about. They would come in and redeem that which was in need. And so most likely this would, have been, this would have always been the closest eligible relative. This is why the, Naomi and Ruth are talking about this, right? So Boaz is not bound to this. This is not something he has to do because we learned last week he's not the closest redeemer. He is just a redeemer in this story, right? But here we see the character of Boaz yet again. He wants to aid 
He wants to help. He wants to press in. He wants to walk, work toward and move toward someone who is in great need. It's showing the amazing nature of Boaz's character in this story, that he is a redeemer. He doesn't view it as an obligation. He views it out of helping. He views it out of love. He's doing it out of a personal connection. Now, Naomi seems to know exactly where Boaz is going to be that evening. So apparently she's asked around about the guy, right? So Naomi, mother-in-law, she, she kind of knows what's going on, the town gossip. She knows where Boaz is going to be. And she says to Ruth this, see, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So she knows right where he's going to be. And the threshing floor, what's going on with this, this, this language? The threshing floor is the place where they would separate the grain and the debris uh, after a great harvest. And it would often take place on a rocky hilltop so that the breezes were available, right? And so threshing traditionally was the, the farmers, after they harvested all, all that they were going to harvest, they had together, they had straw, they had grain, they had like weeds, they had all the stuff together as they harvested it. And they went and they would uh, throw it up in the air with a pitchfork and the heavier kernels of grain would fall to the ground while the chaff or the waste would be blown away in the wind. The grains were heavier and so it would fall down and all the rest of the stuff would just blow away, the stuff they didn't want. And so they had what was most precious to them there on the threshing floor. And so this usually occurred at night because at night, that's where the breezes, the nightly breezes would come in and it made the separation process a little bit easier, a little bit more accessible. The location was usually on a hilltop because it was better for more clear breezes coming through. And like I said, it was usually done on a bedrock surface, so up on a, on a mountain or a hill that was covered in bedrock so that when your grain fell, you, didn't, you weren't picking up a bunch more dirt and just junk on the bottom, but it was easier to pick up that which you needed right off the rocky floor, right off the bedrock. And so this was a very, ex this was, I mean, Months and months and months of harvesting, working, preparing for your crops. The, the harvest, getting all that you had just worked for, was this highly important communal kind of event. It was a big deal in agrarian society, agricultural society. This would have been their investment. This would have been how they would eat. This would be how they would trade. The, the, the results, the fruit of this labor would uh, lasts them months and months and months moving forward while they planted the next crop in hopes that the next six months the rains would come and famine wouldn't hit the land, right? And so this was an important time. And so it was this communal place. It was shared by members of the village. It was a place of joy. It was a place of celebration that God had provided for them. The workers would often sleep at the locations during the evening, during the time of the harvest, because remember, this is their investment. They wouldn't just thresh all the wheat, all their great investment, that which they'd worked months and months for. They didn't just leave it on the rock and then go home. They would all sleep there. They didn't want someone to come steal it. They didn't want someone, something to happen to it. So they would all sleep there at night after a long day's work, a long night's work to protect their investment so that at daybreak, they could gather it all up and bring it back down to their silos. And so... As a result of this communal location, as a result of 
the excitement, the joy, the celebration of God's provision, of all this food that, that God had blessed them with, with this great, um, bountiful harvest. Uh, what we tend to do as humanity is we take the good things of God and we um, maybe overindulge in them in the celebration. And so these places of communal celebration where they would celebrate all that God had done by giving them food, providing for them, uh, ended up becoming places of immorality. There was a little, uh, there was a, a lot too much celebration that would occur as the village would come and it was late in the evening and people were partaking in different things, so to speak, right, at the threshing floor. So over time, the threshing floor became known uh, as a place of debauchery, of a place of um, sinful practice. So what was once a celebration that was, what was celebrating God's provision ended up, because of our sinful bent in nature, turned into a thing that would not have been pleasing to the Lord because everyone was just celebrating a lot uh, and it ended in bad things. So there was that reputation with the threshing floor, all right? And uh, it's actually talked about in Hosea chapter 9. Uh, Hosea, if you're not familiar with, um, uh, God, I'm trying to pick my words carefully. God paints a picture of Israel as a, a woman of ill repute because of uh, her faithlessness to her husband. Okay, you tracking? And God says, you are like this type of person at the threshing floor, describing God's people. So just to give you context, this word pops up other places in the Bible to just highlight that this type of uh, understanding of what went on at the threshing floor happened. And so here we read about it here with Ruth and Boaz. So that all the more tension building, right? It happens other places, but I won't go into those <laughs> here today. So Naomi, yet knowing all this, Naomi for some reason sees this as the opportunity for Ruth to have this meeting with Boaz despite the dangerous nature of the setting, despite the even scandalous uh, reputation of the threshing floor, all right? She clearly has a high view of Boaz. And so these farmers, they would sleep to protect their grain, and so all, there's all these things happening. So this is supposed to be alarming to the reader on purpose, so Naomi here is giving Ruth a plan, right? And there's seven steps to this plan. Uh, and we're going to crank through these seven steps. They're really not, it's, yeah. So we're just going to walk right through these. So remember, this celebration was probably even more um, well-received. Because if you remember when we first started this book, they, Ruth, Ruth was married into this family because that family left because of famine. And the Lord had, re, had visited Bethlehem again with food. And so they were rejoicing all the more because food had finally come. It had been 10 years of famine. It was hardship. And God had come with food. So you can imagine the celebration with these people. So Naomi gives her daughter-in-law a plan. How are we going to meet this man, Boaz? How are we going to make a good impression? Step one, verse three, uh, take a bath. This is good advice, right? I mean, 
Kiddos, if you're ever trying to make a good impression, it's always good to shower and take a bath and, you know, use some good smelling soap, right? So when pursuing a spouse, just don't be the smelly person. So this is a good idea. So Naomi says, Ruth, take a bath. So she takes a bath. Second step, put on some perfume. I think the ESV uh, spiritualizes it and says she anoints herself. I think she's just putting on some perfume. She's putting on some oils. Uh, That would be uh, what they would use at the time. Step three, she says, put on some fresh clothes. She puts on a cloak. So likely what's happening here, so she's taking a bath, she's putting on some perfume, and then Naomi says, put on some fresh clothes. What was probably happening was that when Ruth and Naomi came into Bethlehem, she was wearing the clothes traditionally of a mourning widow who had lost her husband. And so Naomi is most likely, most scholars believe, saying, take off the clothes of a mourning widow and put on the clothes of a possible bride, right? Put on some new clothes. It's time to walk away from uh, you as a mourning widow that's lost your husband and be presentable to Boaz as a potential bride. So there's some cultural implications here with what she would have been wearing. Um, <clears throat> and so she, she does that, uh, maybe some of us are a little bit uncomfortable with this. Like, well, what's, what's going on here? Why is, why is the Bible making a big deal about her appearance? Well, a quick side note, I think this is worth mentioning. Uh, but the Bible is, is clear that it's not unspiritual to look nice. I mean, that's, there's no, there's no um, command in the Bible that says to be someone that walks with the Lord, you need to be downtrodden and never try to look your best for other people. The Bible speaks all over the place about things of beauty, that creation uh, is a thing of beauty, that other people are beautifully created in the image of God. So we don't downplay the physical. There's a lot of religious circles that will downplay the physical and say uh, to follow God is only spiritual. Uh, That's not the case. God cares about the physical and the spiritual. It's both. It's, It's certainly, of course, God cares more about what's in our hearts talks about that all the time, that we shouldn't be vain and just only think about our external appearance. But God doesn't say, oh, you should always just be downtrodden. So God understands that we're a visual people, that things of beauty, creation, other people, that God has wired us in such a way as that. And it's okay. If you want some expressions of beauty found in the Bible, read Song of Solomon. It's all over the place. Solomon says things like this about the beauty of his wife. So guys, if you need some you need some pointers here. You need some one-liners. He says, your eyes are like doves, right? He says, your hair is like a flock of goats. That's a nice one, right? <laughs> your lips are like scarlet. So Solomon says all these things. So the husband has an eye of the beauty of his bride. This is okay. This is a good thing. And wives likewise toward your husbands. And so step four, verse three. Visit Boaz at the threshing floor when he's in a good mood. And then verse 3, but don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. So the picture here is of Boaz enjoying the gifts of creation with some good food, perhaps a tall beverage after a hard day's work of the threshing floor, right? He's celebrating all that God has done. He's celebrating the blessings of God. He's sitting under the stars. He's looking up. And he's celebrating the first harvest that he's probably had in almost a decade. This is cause for celebration. 
Boaz being thankful for all that God has provided for him, for his family, and for his neighbors. And the scene is set for something possibly bad to happen. As we're reading this, we're like, oh, this feels uncomfortable. Meaning some level of impure motive, some level of impurity. This scene, in fact, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, This is where we kind of see some full circle happening here. This scene mirrors, in some ways, Genesis 19, which is actually the sinful action that created the Moabite people, of which Ruth is one. In this scene, go back in Genesis 19 if you're interested in learning more about it. Uh, The product of this scene was a son named Moab that was the start of the Moabite people. So one cannot help but see this entire scene playing out, but yet rather than ending in sinful behavior, ends in purity and upholding that which God holds up as right. It marks of self-control in this situation rather than what took place in Genesis 19, thereby making the Moabite people. In other words, God redeeming that which was impure to that which is pure. In other words, a shadow showing us that no one is outside of the redemptive reach of God. That's amazing. That's amazing. Step five, verse four. So Naomi's saying, this is when you should go talk to him. When he's enjoying the gifts of God, not abusing the gifts of God. Holiness is not forsaking pleasure, but it's meant to be enjoyed, although we're not to be made slave to it. We're not to be make, make, making idols of the gifts of God. Step five, verse four, observe Boaz where he lies down. Ruth definitely needs to follow this step. Otherwise, he gets the wrong guy. That could be very awkward. Step six, uncover Boaz's feet and lie down close to him. One can sense the tension in these instructions. Can you imagine your mother-in-law giving you these instructions? Apparently, this, this, this is one of those cultural things that we don't quite have an understanding of fully. But this was a nonverbal gesture that was customary means of requesting a marriage, something that Ruth will eventually communicate verbally. So Boaz is asleep, and he awakes to see this young woman lying at his feet, and he says, wow, okay, the tension here does not need explaining. Does it? If it does... Ask Josh. He's right here in the front row. Be happy to answer any questions you have after service or later for lunch or coffee, right? (laughs) So here's the scene playing out. Boaz wakes up. There's a young woman lying at his feet, and he's wondering, what are you doing here? In the last step, Naomi says, listen to Boaz's instructions. Naomi leaves the matter to Boaz. She made her plans but the Lord is going to determine the next steps for all of this. Naomi is showing faith in God. She's showing trust in the Lord. And look at Ruth's response. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Um, Ruth has to have tremendous commitment, loyalty, and courage here. This is a very risky plan. She's trusting that Boaz won't respond the way it stereotypical guy might respond during this time and in fact probably even in our time today and scene two plays out Ruth follows the plan but she modifies the plan listen to this so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her and when 
And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. She approaches quietly, right? She's stealth. And at midnight, the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. You can feel the tension in the air. And he says, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. This is important because if you remember, this is a step up from in chapter 2 when Ruth says, I'm not even one of your servants when he first, she first met him. Now she says, I'm one of your servants or I'm of the kind of woman you might marry. And then she adds this. This is her own part of the plan. Naomi didn't tell her this. She adds her own part to this plan. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. This is a phrase used for marriage. She's asking Boaz to marry her. She's not interested in a one-night stand like her ancestors in Genesis 19. She's interested in marriage. Previously, she used this phrase to describe the protection and care of her God that she'd come to know. And here we see that she's asking that Boaz, this man, would be a part of God's plan for protection and provision in her life. She's looking for redemption under the wings of God, first and foremost, and then under the provision and care of this godly, kind, pure, upright man, Boaz. How will Boaz respond? That'll have to be for next week. But before we end, I want to just make two concluding remarks here. There's a lot to learn from this love story, the story of Ruth. Remember, as we're reading this, why are we reading this? Because this story paints a picture of a larger story, pointing us to a greater redemption. And Ruth is a concrete example of the greater redemption we find in our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see here is that our redemption is personal. That's what this whole story is about. The personal redemption of a, another person. Of two real people. There's always a danger for believers, for Christians... For us to learn theology and precepts and understanding and ideas and categories for how God works and operates, but we lose sight of the personal nature of our redemption. We think that Christianity is a bunch of rules. We think that following God is just sort of this robotic thing that if we just do this and don't do that, then everything will be fine. But Ruth shows us a real picture and a reminder that even our redemption bound up in Christ is that of a personal nature. It's a personal nature. It's not just a system. Those systems are helpful for understanding. It's personal. We must never make the gospel in our redemption something mechanical and that of a math equation. It's personal. And because it's personal, the fuel of a personal redemption is that of love. Our redemption is the result of our Redeemer's love. It's personal, and the fuel is love. The great kinsman redeemer, the one that this story is ultimately pointing us to, that we might understand, the second Adam, the scripture calls it. Our groom, Jesus our Lord, the one from whose line comes Boaz and Ruth, did not allow important work to go unfinished. He would not rest until Jesus, our great redeemer, said, It is finished, John 19. 
Christ saw our great need. Christ saw how helpless we were at his feet. We had nothing to bring to him. We had nothing to offer to him. We had nothing but need, but great need. And he looked down at us in a personal way, motivated out of love for that which was undeserving and paid the price to bring us back to himself. Redemption. This is our redemption. It's personal. And the fuel of your redemption in Christ and my redemption in Christ is love. It's love. Jesus, a real person who lived a real life, understanding all of who you are, went and paid the ultimate price to secure our redemption. That's great and true love. Not just a system of understanding, but a personal, true understanding of love. And this church is what should stir the affection of a true Christian. Not just a system of logical um, understandings, not a particular theological system or grid, though those are very helpful, but the wonder of Christ's love for sinners like you and me. That stirs us. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. It's the romance of this divine redemption, the intimacy of our union with Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. That's what inspires us to praise. That's what inspires our adoration. That's what inspires our obedience, our great Redeemer in Christ. Let's pray to him this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that we were bought with a price. Thank you that in our moment of great need, when we had nothing to offer, when we had nothing to bring to you, we fell at your feet, hoping that you would take us. And Lord, by your grace, through your shed blood, you did all the work necessary in the most upright way to bring us and call us children of the Most High. So we thank you for that good news. Thank you that even this story, the story of Ruth and Boaz, shows us a picture of the greater story that we are wrapped up in. That is our, our great redemption. That is personal and that is fueled by love. God, may we worship you because of all that you've done for us. Every day, we bring nothing but need and you continually pour out grace upon grace because of your son, Jesus, our Lord. It's because of him we pray. It's because of him we gather. It's because of him we sing. And we will sing of him and his goodness and righteousness all the days of our lives. Give us endurance to do that. Give us the joy of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, church, and worship him.